Welcome to Precious Snowflakes, episode... 11? 11? Episode number 11. I am your host, Lelius Rose, and... I'm Ben Phelps, your other host, co-host. And we are here to entertain and inform. Yes, today on Precious Snowflakes, we will be discussing... In that uh, order. Two topics, <laughs> one a little closer to heart, the other a little further away. Uh, one is... Seattle's new soda tax and the general trend of progressive cities applying regressive taxes. Uh, and the second topic will be the British election, which was the exciting weekend story for those of us not watching uh, the Comey testimony fallout. You don't say, Governor. Anyway. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, first of all, do you want to give us a little uh so uh this so this week in uh in um local seattle uh nanny state laws the city of the seattle city council passed and the mayor signed a new uh soda tax into effect that uh specifically uh apply i'd have to look at all the details but i know it um it only applies to sugary uh soft drinks it does not apply to diet soda at one point, the mayor, um, like after the soda a, choice of white people, right? Yeah. Well, after at one point, um, while they were uh, discussing it, the mayor suggested that um, our outgoing mayor, uh, Mayor Ed Murray, suggested that it uh, it was suggested to him that they should also tax diet soda because diet soda is apparently um, more popular among uh, white people, whereas uh, sugary sodas like regular you know soft drinks apparently are more popular among people of color and they considered it unfair even though it's ostensibly a tax on sugar the the principle was that because of white privilege that we should also tax diet sodas but they ended up not doing that citing the fact that it's kind of silly to have a sugar tax on things that don't contain sugar I presume. well you say that uh so tara and i uh were actually discussing last night we're discussing uh, the racially charged effects of laws which do not intend to be racially charged. Mm -hmm. And and I was saying that it, it's really important to distinguish when you're talking about laws between intent and effect. Of course. And there are a lot of laws on the books regarding sugary substances, fast food, drugs, <laughs> all sorts of things that where the intent is not inherently racist. The intent sure. is to apply to everyone equally in a way that is fair, but the effect is that we end up with laws that disproportionately hurt lower-income people, people of minority, ethnic and racial groups, people of minority religious groups. Um, and the soda tax is a great example <laughs> of, of this intent versus effect problem. Absolutely. It's the dirty little secret. And... Of all of these types of, you know, <laughs> I, it's it's well, interesting because it's always it's it's generally wealthy liberal white people who propose these type of. I mean, Mike Bloomberg is probably the most famous example. And then when you point out to them how regressive they are and how they disproportionately affect people who are lower income people and people of color, you kind of get this like finger in the ear. No, 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 I'm not listening kind of response. But we're trying to help them. We're trying to. These communities are plagued by obesity and diabetes and all that stuff is true. But the question is, is is taxing them well, the best solution right. to dealing with those right. what, what, genuine public health problems? Is pulling money out of people's pockets the best way to get <laughs> those people to change their behavior? Right. And if anything, New York and Pittsburgh have been great demonstrations that the answer to that is no. It, it seems interesting that Seattle would choose now as a time to pass one of these in the in the wake of several high profile failures. Oh yeah, <laughs> the soda tax. I mean, um, it, it got it got rescinded in in New York, and it's been considered a, a huge failure in Philadelphia, where it's it's yeah. it, where the, the it's where it's really hit hard is is small businesses like uh, like mom and pop uh, convenience stores that yeah. have suffered a lot. So funny funny anecdote that I'm always reminded of. A few years ago, and by a few I mean like ten or something. The FDA was considering banning menthol cigarettes specifically. And the reason they were considering banning menthol cigarettes is because most menthol cigarettes 
contain fiberglass, mm. which is that significant. sounds delicious. Right, it's uh, <laughs> it just really makes the flavor. Um, like smoking anything <laughs> with fiberglass in it is demonstrably worse for you than smoking something that does not have fiberglass in it. And so, is this so, why you like them so much? Like... The so the FDA's <laughs> argument, the FDA's argument was like was like menthol cigarettes contain fiberglass, therefore ban. Like this is truly awful for the people using them. And one of the interesting, the reason it got blocked, because Congress blocked it, was because the Congressional Black Caucus, uh, they wrote a a sort of joint piece where they argued that banning menthol cigarettes would have a racist effect, specifically that it would create yet another black market in urban, predominantly African-American communities, in their constituencies. Ah. And creating another black market would just increase the power of gangs. Interesting. And by increasing the falls. And by increasing the power of gangs, because you would only be able to buy them from gangs... Mm -hmm. um, there would be increasing crime, increasing violence. Well, and that's, you know, I find this a lot with my, you know, well-intentioned, primarily white liberal friends, is when I, when we, whenever we talk about, you know, something that's bad, you know, how to deal with it, I always, I, and, and I bring up that, I, or, I, or, I, or I put it, I state the opi my opinion that it's not, a, the, the best way to get rid of something bad is not necessarily to make it illegal. And they sort of look at me like, well, no, but it's, how could you, don't you know all the terrible stuff that's in this, that, or whatever product? What, why would anyone want to, you know, consume that poison or this and that? And, the, you know, it's, and it's like a, a judgment. Right. And I'm like, well, okay, but, you know, uh, why? People smoke crack. <laughs> yeah. People... And then you'll, you'll hear arguments like, well, they're causing, you know, the, you know, more, you know, public health expenses by, you know, in the case of soda, giving themselves diabetes and obesity and that kind of stuff. And and so th there's this sort of like self-righteous attitude of, well, because I'm paying for their health care with my tax dollars, I should, you know, I, I, I have a vested interest in trying to, you know, force them to be healthier by, by taxing their un, undesirable consumption. Uh yeah, that's interesting because you just reminded me of something. <laughs> and yeah, really but but I, I just I wonder how these same people would feel if there were a hefty tax levied on on the on the on, on damaging things that they do. Well, yes, I mean a Starbucks frappuccino is essentially you know a candy bar a soda, and yeah. a cup. It's certainly full of sugar, right? <laughs> right. That's one of the things about this is like a soda tax may, in theory, be it may be presented as a tax on sugar, but it's. It's way more specific than that. The people who buy pre-packaged, pre-canned beverages uh, that are filled with sugar tend to be of lower socioeconomic status, whereas people of higher socioeconomic status are more likely to buy drinks that are just as bad for you, but which are made on the spot. Things like ludicrously sugary Starbucks or mm -hmm. other coffee drinks. Right. Um I mean, if you really wanted it to be fair... Or like sugar-filled smoothies at Jamba Juice. You'd think if you wanted it to be fair, the thing that should be taxed is the overall sugar content of anything. Yeah. It should be just a straight-up tax on sugar well, per gram. And other, other people have pointed out, uh, and I think this is interesting about the diet soda thing, uh -huh. that uh, artificial sweeteners carry carry their own risks, which sure, are, which are harder to nail down. It's cancer juice, basically, right? I right. Mean, so it, it's harder to nail down what the exact like risk ratio is based on every gram of artificial sweetener mm -hmm. you consume. But it is still, theoretically, as dangerous as sugar. It, I mean... But, what, what, but is that really the point? Is the point... Okay, it's whatever. You can make whatever argument and want that it's bad for you. But it, it, the point is, is the way to, to, to deal with that for the government to get involved and try to discourage people from consuming it by charging them money for it. And, put, and, then, <clears throat> what, and then the question, what do, they get, what, do they, what do they do with the money? They put it into some sort of slush fund where they for educational campaigns or, I mean, it's not like they're even putting it back into public health necessarily. Uh, they're putting it into things like awareness and I don't, I, God knows what, yeah. you know? Well, here's the thing. I assume that none of my former students listen to this because they've had enough <laughs> of me. Uh, but if any of them are, they'll know that I have taught a wide range of religious school classes. 
I taught a curriculum called Sacred Choices, Adolescent Relationships and Sexual Ethics. That sounds which is, fun. Which is basically religious sex ed. Mm. Fascinating. Uh, I've taught... Uh, I have a name tag that says God Specialist on it, which is hilarious and I keep. Oh, uh, Ben. So I've taught a lot of things, and a lot of what I've taught in the past has been about the moral and ethical stances of non-Orthodox Judaism, because that's the world I come from. Um, and in general, my philosophy has always been, and this was taught to me as like the way you're supposed to teach these things. You don't tell people you have to do this. You have to do that. You know, that's what the Orthodox do in non-Orthodox Judaism. You teach people, well, here's a spectrum of beliefs of, uh, of philosophies that are held by Jewish people. It is up to you as an individual to choose which belief, which system you're going to adhere to, but now you know what the options are. And that was especially important with sacred choices. Uh, because as a as sort of a sex ed religious class, it wasn't it obviously wasn't about the biological details, that's for school. Um, but it also wasn't about telling kids like this is what you have to do. It was about this these are the th these are the different things that Judaism says about communication, about having deep personal relationships with other people, about premarital sex. Like, here are the various things that Judaism says. You have to make a moral choice yourself about what it is that you are or are not going to do. And I think a lot of what brought me into being a libertarian was, being, was teaching those classes. Because I really hold the same philosophy with everything. That if you... That... That don't tell people, don't drink soda. Don't tell people, don't eat fattening food. Because best case scenario is they'll listen to you just because you're seeming authoritative. Mm -hmm. What you really should want is for people to hear what the possibilities are. Hear the facts. Hear the different philosophies. Think critically about how they apply to their own lives. And then make a decision for themselves. And I firmly believe that the government's role should be the same as my role in the classroom. Instead of saying, this is what you have to do when it comes to things like cigarettes, drugs, sugary beverages, the government's role should be to help make sure that there is accurate information in the marketplace, you know, to make sure that people know what it is they're doing and well, then yeah. allow them to make these critical decisions for themselves. Well, yeah, I mean, I think transparency and, you know, is, is important. I mean, we, we should have the right to know what's in the food that, yeah. well, that so, we're consuming. Right, one, of the, one of the things that separates me from the full-blown anarchists in the party is that I do believe that something that government can do and right. can do well is provide information and enforce that information be right. honest. But as, as a citizen, do I have any vested interest in preventing you from drinking soda? Or do I have any, like, even moral or ethical right to try to, to, to enact a law to prevent you from drinking something that I personally think is bad for you? So that's an interesting question, because I... Now that we're talking about this, a whole bunch of because that's that's the justification. That's in. the stated intent is to prevent people from consuming something that the city council has decided is bad for you. So, part of it comes back to the question of public funding for healthcare. It really does for me. The moral imperative question is actually for me a question about public funding for healthcare. Um, there's a a woman, uh, I think her name is Lindy West. Oh, I know her. Is that right? Who's a, <laughs> who's like a, you know, sort of fat and proud kind of person. She she does speaking. She she's a public. She's speaker. a writer. Yeah. She's a writer and a public speaker who mm -hmm. talks about, you know, not being ashamed of being overweight. Well, yeah. And I mean, it's and it's, she's like she's like it's my body. I like it just fine. It serves me. It serves me yeah. well. And I don't have to apologize for the way my body looks. It's because it's it's not your problem. You yeah. Know? And I would say, for the record, that I find I find her to be interesting, and I think she is predominantly right. the The question, though, that I uh, Tara showed me a video of her speaking, and the the question that was brought up for me is she she states that there is no. Uh, no one has a moral obligation to be healthy. No, I mean, her body is hers. It's the same with all of us. Well, yeah, a moral obligation to be healthy, to, to save other people money. I mean, <laughs> well, there, that's when we come to the problem 
is like no one has a moral obligation to be healthy but what if the other people are paying for their health care i think there is uh-huh. i think there is a question there well, that's one of the problems with us all paying for each other's health care is when, right. I mean, I, I sort of, I can get behind the idea to a certain extent, but not if it means you get to, you know, require, you know, tell me what I can and can't eat well, or give me a hard time for being healthy because you're like, have this paternalistic attitude about well, there's also, <laughs> looking after my health. There's also a difference. There's a difference between what do you as an individual have a moral obligation to do or not do versus what right does the government have to force you to do or not do that thing? Right. Um, I, I would say that does, does an individual have a moral obligation to live a healthy life because other people are paying for that health care? For me, that's sort of an open question. I'm not really sure about that, but does the, is it the government's job to force people to live a healthy life because taxpayers are paying for that person's health care even even that to me is a bridge too far well yeah and even if you and even if you think that that's a good idea just because you you think that that's good public policy i would argue that it's not a particularly effective way to achieve no public health by using uh, punitive measures like that but when it comes to um Right, that's the thing is we know we know the policy itself is totally ineffective. We know if it's you, ineffective but, because New York City got rid of it. And it, but if you absolutely reason. are going to insist on taxing something like like soda because you think it's bad, and it be, if the thing you're taxing is sugar, it should apply equally to all to anything all with things. sugar in it, no, in any form that's going to be for human consumption, regardless of of what it's contained in. I, I mean, if it's if it's your you know organic you know whatever organic Greek yogurt, <laughs> super, you know, granola, crunchy, whatever, you know, it shouldn't matter what it's in. Sugar yeah, is sugar. Organic, I mean, organic granola is filled with sugar. Well, I mean, I have to roll my eyes when, I, when people, when I see someone going, Oh, Coca-Cola is evil. High fructose corn syrup is evil, but this, this organic, uh, you know, cane sugar. Oh, it's so much healthier. And it's like, well, it's, <laughs> it's, it's not going to make you any less diabetic than high fructose corn syrup. I mean, yeah. This, this, I, I mean, <laughs> but that, that whole, I mean, the, yeah. Yeah. That's just not the way that works. Uh, yeah. Surprise. That, that, when that's, your body that's... processes sucrose, it processes mm-hmm. sucrose the same way every time. Mm, pretty much. Yeah. I don't think the, uh, the, <laughs> your, your blood doesn't really, uh, I don't think the pesticides or whatever in the sugar makes all that much difference when it, when it comes to your, uh. Your, uh, your, what is it? Your, uh, oh. I forgot the name of that body part. Your, uh, <laughs> is it your, um, however, the pesticides, whatever. <laughs> according, according to Logan, the pesticides do keep us from having sweet, superpowered mutations. Okay. So you and I are definitely in vigorous agreement that the soda tax is probably a bad idea. Yeah. Uh, just because, you know, we don't like being told what to drink. My favorite, my favorite detail, by the way, about the Philly thing Mm -hmm. is that they created an estimate of how much money they were going to get from the soda tax that was based on the assumption that soda consumption within the city limits would not go down. Sure. Probably not. I mean, I think what it'll do is um, mom and pop convenience stores that are owned by, you know, less wealthy, uh, you know, people who are more likely to be people of color <laughs> will probably, you know, Go not sell business. as much. And uh, places that are just over the city limit, like big box, you know, stores owned by big corporations will probably sell a lot so, more of it. So we actually, we already have data on this. Mm-hmm. And this I know about because hilariously, so Philly created this estimate of like, this is how much money we're going to make from the soda tax based on this assumption that consumption rates would not go down within the city limits. Mm-hmm. And then obviously they went down they went down 40 percent 40 fucking percent uh (laughs) meanwhile uh soda purchasing directly outside the city limits is through the roof um people are just driving right outside the city limits to buy soda in bulk meanwhile uh, i think over 250 people at the pepsi distribution center in philly have all been laid off now because the consumption rates are down so much which Pepsi warned the city would happen and the city insisted mm-hmm. would not happen. Uh, but now, hilariously, the city of Philadelphia is attempting to get, I think, a 600, it's either a three or a $600 million loan. Either way, they're attempting to get an astronomical 
loan from a bank based on their model that is based on the assumption that soda consumption would not go down. Well, geez, that sounds like the worst of both worlds. You know, you're, you're not, the, the consumption is not going down and yet you're actually hurting the people economically that you're supposedly trying to help. Uh-huh. Right. And the city, great, great idea. And the city <laughs> revenue is going down, mm-hmm. uh, is, is so far below their estimates that now they're taking out a giant loan and the, the theoretical collateral is money that they know they're not going to receive. Like, it's, they are just so far, their heads are so far up their own asses that I'm pretty sure they will never again be able to smell anything but fart. <laughs> Hear that, Seattle City Council? <laughs> yeah, but I mean, like, this is what's going to happen. Uh, soda consumption, soda purchasing in Shoreline is going to shoot through the roof. Soda purchasing in Bellevue and Kent is going to go through the roof. Uh, but soda sales in the city of Seattle will go down, which will hurt local small local stores. And people who cannot afford to leave the city to go shopping, people of color, people of low economic status, low socioeconomic status, they are the ones who are going to be paying this tax. They're going to be the ones left footing the bill. Well... On that note, let's talk about British politics. Yay! Ah, British politics. Uh, For those of you who have not been keeping track of the hilarity that is British electoral politics, um, two hilarious things have happened in the last, you know, year. Uh, One of them, of course, is Brexit. And, uh, Here's some fun context. How did we how did we get to where we are now vis-a-vis British politics? <laughs> uh, for you want to fill the the viewers in on what's going on or oh, the yes. listeners in just yes. so they they have they just so they have some idea why we're talking about this <laughs> as as sort of succinctly as possible. Uh, people remember the name Tony Blair. He was the Bush's lapdog. Right. He was the leader of a movement within the British Labour Party, which is their mainstream left-wing party that is theoretically sort of social democrat of the Bernie variety. But Tony Blair, uh, he took over the party in the 90s, and his goal was to drag it into the center, to abandon socialism within the Labour Party, and instead adhere to a Bill Clinton-esque third way, you know, centrism. And this... Did all right for a while, except for his 100% willingness to jump into any war with George W. Bush. This came to a shocking end in 2010. There was an election, a parliamentary election in 2010, where the Conservative Party uh, flooded into a majority. And not only did they have an outright majority, but uh, Britain's largest third party, the Liberal Democrats who are a party of classical liberals of the sort of moderate libertarian flavor, or at least presumably they're the British version of what would in America be moderate libertarians. Yeah. The closest thing. They're the closest thing. Although there is an actual libertarian party, right? Yeah. There is an actual libertarian party that is more like sort of the radical wing of the American libertarian party. Mm -hmm. The, the liberal Democrats of Britain, they're like, you know, they're like En March in France or uh, VVD and D66 in the Netherlands or the Liberal Party of Canada. They're supposed to be, their spectrum is uh, pure centrists on one end and libertarian minarchists, meaning minimal government, on the other end. And most of their politicians and voters, you know, move around somewhere in between those two points. Uh, so in 2010... The conservatives sort of rocked into a majority on the back of the Labour Party having sold itself out, and the Lib Dems swept in with an unprecedented, like, 30-some seats. And they actually agreed to form a coalition government with, uh, or it may have been like 70, I don't even know, whatever. They agreed to form a coalition with the conservatives, and David Cameron became prime minister. For five years, this rocky center-right coalition kept control until 2015 uh, when 
the Conservative Party won a massive outright majority of parliament and the Liberal Democrats, who whose voters felt like they had sold out to join the coalition, were basically drummed out. They were left with something like eight seats. Hmm. So in the end, the Labour Party was eviscerated in 2010. The Liberal Democrats were eviscerated in 2015. And the Conservatives were, you know, the king dogs of shit mountain or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and David Cameron, the the wonder kid and <laughs> pig rapist, uh, question mark, was uh, uh, remained on top. And then he did one of the <laughs> last year. He made one of the dumbest self-defeating decisions of any politician in Western history. Uh, the conservative party had started to eat itself alive on the issue of the EU. Uh, a number of third parties, like the Scottish National Party, which wants independence from Britain. That's a lot of parties they got over there. Right. So, well, what they have, broadly speaking, is they have two big parties, a mainstream left-wing party, which is Labour, and a mainstream right-wing party, which is the Conservatives, or Tories. And then they have a bunch of smaller parties, the Liberal Democrats, who are sort of centrist to libertarian, uh, the Scottish National Party, which only runs for office in Scotland, wants independence from England, mm-hmm. uh, played Simru, which is the Welsh party equivalent, Sinn Féin, again, an equivalent in Northern Ireland. They want, in, they want to merge with the Republic of Ireland. And then there are a handful of other smaller things, Green Party, uh, the Democratic Unionist Party, which is basically the conservatives of Northern Ireland. Uh, but it's always been, they, they have more or less a two-party system because their elections are basically like Congress, you know, where it's two, where it's like a group of people running against each other head to head in local races. And it's first past the post. It's not proportional right. like it is in the rest of Europe. And when you have a first past the post system, it will always gravitate towards a two party system. Okay. Um, so the, the problem is we're throwing a lot of jargon out here. What actually happened? Why are we talking about this? So, so UKIP, UKIP, the UK independence party, the anti-immigration party, they had one issue. Their one issue was they wanted, they wanted Britain to leave the EU, uh, so that they could retain control of their borders and stop all these immigrants from coming in. Uh, and they were winning elections in the European Parliament elections, in the regular Parliament okay. elections. They they were starting to get some real traction. Nigel Farage, Trump's buddy. Yeah. And a lot of members of the Conservative Party were starting to say, hey, we're going to either have to co-opt their message or join them somehow, or they're going to eventually beat us. David Cameron is a pro pro-European Union conservative. And his response to this was to take all of these Eurosceptics within his own party and say, fine, if you want to compromise with UKIP, if you want to if you want to engage with their ridiculous belief that a majority of British people will ever want to leave the European Union, I'm going to give you exactly what you want. Right. Here, an mm. in or out referendum. Simple. Everyone votes, do we stay in the EU or do we leave the EU? And of course, the rest is history. David Cameron did not need to do this. He chose to do it. He was, he was against leaving the EU, <laughs> and yet he's the one who called for the vote. Yeah, the whole thing was his idea. It was, it was to, it was to show, it was a show of, uh, of, of force. Right. It was a show of force that blew up in his face. Mm-hmm. And he uh, promptly resigned after losing. Yep. And now, and he was, uh, in short, replaced with Theresa May, aka. The uh, Chinese knockoff version of Margaret Thatcher. Uh, I just like if you squint or from they, a or distance. Or Maybot, as they like to call her there. Yeah, Maybot, weak yes. and wobbly. Um, so she took over being a pro-Brexit conservative. She took over the Conservative Party, and she has been attempting to run the country ever since. But now that they're beginning negotiations with the EU, they have reached a point. Uh, they reached a point of crisis where they realized that. The things that Britain wanted, or or at least the things that Theresa May wants from the divorce with the EU, are 
very different from the things that the EU negotiators want from this divorce. So she decided that the best way to bolster her standing in these negotiations was to call for the snap election. And that was seven weeks ago. That's that's what they call a snap election is when you're going to have one in seven weeks. Right. And like, I guess it's better than 18 months like we have. Well, their <laughs> their scheduled their next scheduled election mm-hmm. would have been 2020. Right, right. And here's what she was hoping. And you so, can just do that. You can just call an early election whenever. So since the evisceration of the Labour Party in 2010, the the mainstream left in Britain has done a tremendous amount of soul searching. And unfortunately, what they have come up with is a guy who is basically the worst political and personal instincts of Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump mixed in a blender and poured into a British mold. You're talking about Jeremy Corbyn? I am talking about Jeremy Corbyn. Not to be confused with Jeremy Clarkson. Not to be confused with Jeremy Clarkson. I would actually vote for Jeremy Clarkson. So even Corbyn, though he, even though he well maybe I wouldn't but still uh, Corbyn <laughs> who is known for sympathizing with Hamas and other ISIS affiliated organizations charming fellow uh, yeah really charming he's a he's a a hardcore Marxist but, but I hear the youngsters like him the same way that youngsters like both Bernie and weirdly Trump mm-hmm. in this country like so I said, if you're into Pepe memes is he your guy I think so okay uh, right so Corbyn Corbyn is sort of this weird mashup of Bernie and Trump, uh, who's a hardcore Marxist and also pro-Brexit. And basically the decision May made, she's looking at polls. But he's less pro-Brexit, right? He's like for softer Brexit. Yeah, ish. So so basically the way it was looking is that uh, Theresa May looked at the polls and Corbyn, because of his both personal and political problems being extreme left having sympathies for terrorist organizations uh it really looked like there was no way that labor could possibly improve their standing among the british people uh and but because both the tories and labor were pro-brexit there was no risk of the tories losing the anti-brexit seats so she calls the snap election and everything immediately goes to shit town because it turns out that Jeremy Corbyn is in addition to being maybe a lunatic, also incredibly charismatic. Whereas Theresa May can like barely get two <laughs> sentences out without someone falling asleep. Well, didn't she skip debates also? Yeah. And so she, she just... skipped debates. She's also, uh, her, her big tagline was strong and steady. Mm-hmm. And then almost as soon as Strong and Steady came out as her tagline, she reversed course on a number of uh, domestic issues, like things having to do with uh, how the elderly would pay for health care. The dementia tax. The dementia tax. And as a consequence, uh, someone asked her, uh, so your your thing is Strong and Steady, but after this U-turn, aren't you feeling a little weak and wobbly right now? And that just became a thing, and I love it. Weak and wobbly, <laughs> Theresa May. Uh, so, so, so her whole plan was to hold the snap election when she was like, when, when had a had a huge, you know, popularity lead. Yeah, yeah, like something like twenty points or something. The polls were showing, and they were going to, you know, run up the score and gain a whole bunch of uh, additional seats in Parliament. Yeah. And what actually happened? Didn't did the election just happen? So the election just happened. Uh, The results were coming in all the way through last night. And uh, the conservatives who were supposed to win a huge majority when they called this election. They're supposed to gain seats, right? They were supposed to gain seats. They lost seats. They lost so many seats that although they remain the largest party in the House of Commons, uh, they no longer have an outright majority. They have something like they have 45 percent. Of seats in Parliament. Uh, Labor had a huge increase. They're up to, I think, right. 40%. So that's what we call a hung Parliament, right? <laughs> yep. So yeah, what's hap- what parliament. happens when you have a hung Parliament? Do they hang everyone in Parliament? If only. Uh, so, <laughs> just kidding. So 15% approximately of the remaining seats are held by small parties, third parties, regional parties. Basically, what happens now 
is that Theresa May gets gets to keep being prime minister. Uh, and what she... It is her job to try to form some sort of coalition that uh, that will enable her to retain control. And it looks like what they're going to do mm-hmm. is they're going to merge... Or not merge. They're going to join a coalition with the Democratic Unionist Party, which is the right-wing Northern Irish political party. Ah, I see. The Protestants, right? Yeah, so... The so the Ulster Unionists. <laughs> not The Ulster Union Party was knocked out of the election completely. Oh, okay. Yeah, so Northern Ireland used to have maybe a half dozen political parties mm-hmm. that were all, relatively speaking, contenders. But now, this election has whittled them down to just two. Ah, the right. far-right, social conservative, Democratic Unionist Party, which wants to stay <laughs> in the UK and is pro-Brexit, and the far-left, formerly a terrorist organization, uh, party Sinn Féin, which wants to leave the UK and merge with the Republic so of Ireland. Just a slight, as, as long as we're talking about Ireland, then, <clears throat> so, you know, I... The Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland have have an open border between them. There's no, you know, checkpoints or anything like that. If if the UK leaves the EU, are they going to put up a hard border in Ireland then between yeah Ireland and, and Northern Ireland? And weirdly, that that seems like it'd be kind of not so great for their economy. Well, weirdly, that's what that's what uh, the DUP wants. Mm-hmm. The Democratic Unionist Party, the right wing party that is now going to form a coalition with the Tories. They they want that. They want a hard border. Uh, in part, I think, because they represent the sort of ethnic English who live in Northern Ireland. Uh, they, they do not represent the parts of Northern Ireland that border the Republic. They represent the parts that are closer to Scotland, both uh, physically and demographically. Okay. Uh, so they, they support that. They're, so they're going to join this coalition because they actually want that hard border they don't want to have anything to do with the republic of ireland that's that's what Sinn fein is for basically the northern irish voters weirdly have whittled down their choices to a single issue choice they have a they have a let's all be irish choice and a let's all be british choice and the let's all be british party is the democratic unionist party and they're the ones who got the most seats in Northern Ireland now, and they're the ones who are going to be working with the conservatives to form a very narrow majority. Uh, already, people like Corbyn are calling for Theresa May to resign as prime minister. Oh, yeah. I'm sure, and, and I get the sense that the that that the consensus is she's going to be around for a while, but oh, yeah. that her days are numbered, probably a matter of months. Well, it's a so it's a question of like they. They need. I mean, who else? I mean, there's talk of Boris Johnson replacing her. That would probably be better. Yeah. Uh, they here's here's what this election proved. Yes, it, for all our, for all of our listeners who don't intensely follow British politics. So, so there are a number of of interesting takeaways from this. Uh, one of them is that their their mainstream right wing party, the Conservatives got shellacked okay they they are still going to be in charge but they're going to have a very very slim margin of error it's like the difference between the republicans uh in the house in the united states and the republicans in the senate in the house they have a huge number uh they have a huge majority therefore they can have all this infighting but at the end of the day they can pass things in the Senate, it is much, much harder for the Republicans to pass anything because their majority is so slim. So the conservatives are going to go from having a commanding majority where they could pass just about anything they wanted to, to not even having a majority and needing to convince right-wing parliament members from other parties to vote with them in order to get anything done. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn the leader of labor, the Marxist, is hoping and planning to force a no-confidence vote, which would throw the conservatives out of government and allow him the opportunity 
to form a new government. So how does that work? A no, what is that exactly? I've heard of a no confidence vote, but you know, operationally, what what is how what what is that? How so, does how does that how does that happen? How does one initiate that? So it's important to remember that the way this works in Britain is a lot less like the U.S. presidency and a lot more like the Speaker of the House. The Prime Minister functional like the Prime Minister from an election perspective is more like the Speaker of the House than they are like right. the Well, president. they're elected by their own conference. Right, they're elected one. by their own constituency first, and then their party conference chooses them to lead. Uh, so basically, at any moment... Theresa May doesn't show up on the ballot except in her district. So. Right. At any moment, uh, someone can propose a no-confidence vote. That means we do not believe that the current government uh, is representative of the British people. And if a majority of parliament agrees that they have no confidence in the current prime minister and the cabinet around them, then that party loses their position as top dog. And the next largest political party is offered the opportunity to try to form their own coalition government. The problem is, uh, if that happened, and Corbyn knows this, he would, not, he would not be able to create a majority coalition because he would need every small party, every third party, mm. every independent parliament member. And, and I get the sense there's not a real groundswell of support in the UK for Jeremy Corbyn to be prime minister. No. <laughs> so, so what he can do is if he succeeds in a no-confidence vote, he can amend to that a request they hold another election. Okay. And if a majority of members of parliament agree that it's that it's time to have a new election instead of just letting Corbyn take over, then that's what they'll do. And that's what Corbyn wants. He hmm. want he's already said so two things have happened just this morning. One thing was that Theresa May got official approval from the royalty to form her minority government uh with the support of the Democratic Unionist Party, so she gets to stay in charge, and the Democratic Unionists will form this coalition, at least on some issues with the Conservatives. And Corbyn has announced that he will be pushing both for a no-confidence vote and for a new election. And he believes that if there's a new election, which would happen within the next six months, that the Labour Party would win an outright majority. That's, mm -hmm. what, he's, that's what he has declared. Yeah, yeah. That now... Now that sort of uh, like the facade of the conservative party has been broken. So a no confidence vote would probably cause May to step down, right? Absolutely. It would force her to step yeah, down. Yeah, I mean, that's what the whole point of it is, is to basically, it's a no confidence yeah. in the PM, right? Yeah. And so now the question is, uh, May clearly wants to stay in charge. Yeah, she's been prime minister for less than a full year. So she wants to prove to people that she is better than these seven weeks of campaigning have shown her to be. But understandably, members of her own party, as well as all the members of every other party, uh, are feeling like there's no way. And, and the funny thing about Boris Johnson, uh, Boris Johnson is, a, is an interesting figure. He's very charismatic. He's charismatic. He's interesting. He's got a very commanding presence. Right. The thing about Theresa May is that the Conservative Party was hoping for a return of the Iron Lady. And what they <laughs> right, and what they got was like the charcoal lady. <laughs> like it looks kind of tough, but if you hit it it breaks. Uh And and so now the Conservatives are the ones who are going to have to do some soul searching. You know, Brexit has forced them to have tremendous internal debates about how pro-EU or anti-EU can they be? What parts of this divorce do they want or don't want? And they're going to have to keep asking this question amongst themselves. And May has clearly demonstrated that she is not the right referee. She's not the right person to lead her party in this internal conversation. And the British voters have expressed this by attempting to throw her party out. Hmm. Uh they didn't in the end, in part because they certainly weakened her a lot. I mean, she's certainly her. in a. I mean, the the big problem for her is she's in a much weaker uh, negotiating position now with the EU as far as Brexit's concerned. So the question is, all right, we're Brexiting. 
but who's going to be you know representing our country and getting the best oh, yeah. you know in the in the best negotiating position with the EU so so one of the funnier things about this is normally in british politics it's very party versus party platform versus platform they don't get into the politics of the personal very often like they don't like they they don't elect prime ministers they elect their parties right uh, but in this election, Theresa May et al. Uh, decided to really go for an American-style, personality-driven mm-hmm. campaign because they were betting that <laughs> Jeremy Corbyn is so colossally unlikable for so many reasons that people would just be like, you know what, I can't vote for a Labour candidate because I'm terrified of Corbyn. In, instead, Corbyn holds these big monster, like, Bernie-slash-Trump-style rallies yeah, and gets and gets the youth vote all, you know, jazzed up. Well, the, So the sad thing for me is, you know, like I said earlier, the Liberal Democrats, which used to be run by Nick Clegg and are now run by Tim Farron, the Liberal Democrats are the most, like, a moderate libertarian party that Britain has, you know, they are sort of the most like us, uh, Lel and I that Britain has, uh, for the most part. And they were really hoping that they would get a huge increase in numbers because the liberal Democrats, in addition to being sort of classically liberal and libertarian leaning, they are interestingly very pro EU uh, they're part of ALDI, the Alliance of Liberals and Democrats for Europe, which is the sort of center to libertarian spectrum European political party that is simultaneously very pro-EU, but also for drastically reforming the EU to make it uh, a smaller, tighter, and much more transparent government with more authority so that they don't have as much overlapping responsibility. I see. That's what Aldi wants, and the Lib Dems are part of Aldi. The Lib Dems were really hoping that the almost half of Brits who voted to remain in the EU, they were hoping that all of those people would come over to the Lib Dems and at the very least make them the the make-or-break part of any coalition, just like they were in 2010. Unfortunately... Uh, the Lib Dems did get more seats. They jumped from like eight-ish to twelve, but they lost a couple of really important seats. Mm. They like, uh, so Nick Clegg. Yeah, I heard who, about him. Everyone was, everyone in the room gasped when they. Uh, by the way, can I just say I really love the way they announce election results in UK parliamentary elections, where in each like uh, for, e- for each seat they basically you know, have a, like a town hall meeting and all the candidates get up on the stage wearing, wearing like prize pig, like, 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 like it's a, like it's a, it's like, like it's a state fair or something. Right, it's like halfway between a beauty pageant and a slave. Yeah. Auction. They all stand up on the stage wearing a, wearing color coded ribbons and then they read all the results. And then the person who, uh, who wins, like, you know, Gets makes a speech while everyone else sort of slinks off stage, <laughs> and and looking dour. <laughs> yeah. But and they do this for every district, which is really interesting. And so, like watching British election returns, you basically they're talking, doing all sorts of analysis. They don't have um, it would you know, party. They don't they they don't have candidate surrogates, you know, blathering like we do on our you know cable news. Instead, they have a lot of very like you know dry like you know analysis and graphs and stuff. And then they keep cutting into these various towns where they're announcing the winners. And this Nick Clegg guy, he's a Lib Dem, I guess, who's been. You know, in, in well, the, their was, MP for a long time, and it was a big shocker when he lost. So Nick Clegg, Nick Clegg was the leader of mm-hmm. the Liberal Democrats. He was their young, charismatic, you know, white Obama esque leader who was supposed to lead the Liberal Democrats into a new era of importance, and that seemed to happen in 2010 when they swept not into right. a majority, but when they swept into a huge okay. number of seats that allowed them to choose who would be prime minister. And they chose Cameron. And because they chose David Cameron, they got, they got the blame from the anti David Cameron part of the country. Okay. And their voters abandoned them in 2015. And so in 2015, when they were reduced from, (laughs) when they were, they were reduced from dozens of seats 
to half a dozen seats. So just and to... as a consequence, Clegg stepped down as leader, but stayed in Parliament. Now he's actually lost his seat. So to wrap this up, how do you think the, the elections yesterday in the UK are going to affect Brexit? That's tough. I had, I had one other non-Brexit okay. thing to say, which is interesting. Uh, which is even though the conservatives lost their uh, lost their majority, the more people voted for the two big parties, Labour and the Tories. Oh yeah, that was the other big story. Then previously, they've gone back to being like a, a two like party a, system. Exactly. All of the third parties, regional parties, groups not like the night. Scottish <laughs> National Party, groups like the Lib Dems. It was not a great night. We got creamed. Some of them, some of them like the Lib Dems gained seats, not nearly as much as they were hoping. Mm -hmm. Scottish National right. Party, which uh, used good. to control just about every seat that represented Scotland in the UK Parliament. Mm -hmm. They, they just got, they lost like a third of their seats. You know, it, it was a huge, terrible night for them. Uh, so yeah, the UK has gravitated more towards a two party system uh, where both parties are pro-Brexit. Uh, <laughs> Sounds really chaotic. One, one is led by an empty suit, and the <laughs> other is led by a terrorist sympathizer Marxist. So... With some anti-Semitic leanings. You... Oh, yeah. With some... Yeah, there's been a lot of, uh, of weird anti-Semitism happening in the British Labour Party. And for me, that's uh, a little worrying. The sort of mainstreaming of anti-Semitism in left-wing politics in Europe is not not a good sign. Well, with that, I think we should probably wrap up this extra wonky edition of Precious Snowflakes. Yeah, it's been good. I'm, I'm Lelius Rose. And I'm Ben Phelps. And we will see you when we see you. Yep. Or you will hear from us you'll, when you hear from us. You'll be hearing from us. <laughs> you will. I. Good night. Good night. Good night.